Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rudd, your host, and thank you so much for listening to this special episode. A couple weeks ago, I made the decision to do a different format for the year in review, and the idea was to have more voices for shorter periods of time, so I approached a number of people with the idea of doing 15 to 20 minutes on the year that just passed, and the response was absolutely fabulous. And the response was actually so big that it led to what needed to be a two-part podcast. And since they were all recorded within the same time frame, there are two parts that are coming out at the same time. But how I ended up dividing it up is that the first part is going to be the guests that I had on that are not affiliated with Real GM. Those are Yahoo's Mark Spears, ESPN's Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, Geeks.com's Arturo Galetti, and Slam Online and Sports Fan Journal Ed Mazinette. They're all on this one. Everyone talks for between 15 and 20 minutes. And then the second one, which is part two, is going to be all guests that are affiliated with Real GM. I'll, we'll go through those in part two. So thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoy it. And first up is a guy I've been really happy to have on. He was actually, hopefully, was going to be on the first episode of the show, but through a series of conflicts that ended up not happening. And that is Mark Spears. He is an amazing guy, an amazing basketball mind. And he knows the league like very few other people. So it was really fun to have him on and talk about the year that just happened. Thank you so much to Mark for coming on. Oh, no problem, man. Happy New Year in advance. Happy New Year. Thinking about 2013 as a whole, what is your story of the year for the year? Story of the year for the year. Hmm. You know what? I, I think it's LeBron getting his second championship. I know maybe to some that may not sound super sexy, but I just think the way he's been viewed and the way he's been respected changed dramatically once he got that second one. Um, the first one, I think, was, was certainly a milestone and probably the greatest of his career and got a lot of people off his back, but I think the second one basically showed that he's not a one-hit wonder. He is a for-real legendary superstar in this game and kind of cemented, I think, in, in his legacy. Because with just one, I think there would have been some, some certainly some naysayers when it came to all-time greats in discussion with him. But at least with two, you know, it, it puts you into better, better company, and he, he's certainly capable of getting more. And with the way that Wade played, particularly during the playoffs in the late regular season when his injuries were affecting him, LeBron... I think that the narrative also shifted because he did so much 
not necessarily without Wade, but with less of him. And so the narrative of, oh, it took two or three of them to do it faded a little bit with how dominant he was individually. Yeah, I mean, he, he had his injury issues and he was up and down. Uh, but LeBron was dominant the whole way through the way he helped will that team back when it seemed like the Spurs were going to, you know, lock it down. And I think that's part of it, too, is the whole Spurs thing. And that was probably the most stunning thing I saw. And I don't mean to maybe take one of your other questions, but just their collapse. I mean, you're, you're talking about a franchise that never made a mistake. There's always a small margin for error against them. And for them to lose that game six the way they did, so close to winning the championship with the people that uh, protect the court during celebrations already around, ready to give them their hats and their <laughs> their hats and their uh, t-shirts, and that falling apart, and them just getting beat like they did in game seven, is still stunning to me. That game six will probably go down as the greatest finals game I've seen in person. Seeing it in person, did you feel, and of course it doesn't have to be an either-or thing, did you feel that it was more the Heat won it, or did you feel it was more that the Spurs lost it? You know, combination of both. I mean, all the every everything that could have went wrong for the Spurs did. Missed free throws, two straight three-pointers by the Heat, especially the big three-pointer from Ray, and then I think come overtime, they just were like, man... <laughs> It, it, it was uh, the momentum just switched, and I could tell just how exasperated they were after the game. The things that Ginobili was saying, it just definitely seemed like a deflation that, of all teams, I would expect them to get over and move on from, but it, it certainly seemed like there was a carryover effect in the game seven. And if you're talking about legacies, as much as LeBron gained with his the Spurs had a chance to cement themselves as kind of something different in the basketball landscape with beating a team like the Heat playing as well as they were. And they might get that chance again. I, I hope that they do. But that's a really big change as well that's been underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, they basically put themselves in dynasty situation as far as, you know, Bulls and Celtics and Lakers as far as championships. And they had never lost in the finals before. So, that, I think, was a surprising thing. I think a lot of people certainly expected them to win from the beginning, even with, uh, you know, I think more so the, the basketball minds did, just because of the style of play that's played in the Eastern Conference, I mean, the Western Conference, their size, their three stars, their championship experience. But I, I, I've probably covered 10 NBA finals, and I've never seen a team let, maybe the Boston Celtics to a certain extent, and 2010, but I ne I've never seen a team let the title or the, or the Larry O'Brien trophy slip through their hands like the Spurs did. I'm guessing it'll be a natural segue, but wh who was your pick for player of the year for 2013? Well, definitely LeBron, man. He, he, improved, he continually improves his game. His jumper is definitely a threat now. There's no way you could really guard him. He could do everything. If there is maybe one small knock, I just wonder how different he would be with a Kobe mentality or Michael Jordan-type scoring mentality. But that probably would take away from what he is. You know, he's known to me not as just a, a major scorer as Jordan and Bryant have often been regarded as. He's known as an all-around great player who 
gets the best out of his teammates and makes his players better. And and to me, he's probably the most amazing player I've seen since Magic Johnson. You know, I think what Magic Johnson did is often uh, not respected enough. The fact that he was able to play five positions and play the center position in a in a key game in the NBA Finals. LeBron pretty much could do everything, but, you know, we haven't really seen him play center. But he could play everything else, guard anybody. He He's certainly one of those special, rare, once-every-15-20-year type players. Yeah, for me, LeBron and I are actually almost exactly the same age. We're a couple months apart. And watching him when he was young, when he was a sophomore and junior in high school, I was somebody who grew up with Magic Johnson as my favorite player to watch. And it was his court vision is just incredible, whether you're talking about guys his size or guys shorter and his passing ability. So he's a very different guy than Michael and then Kobe. And I think I think you're right that it's kind of he'd be a very different player with that mindset. But I think it allows me at least to appreciate him more. And also his length helps him so much on defense. Yeah. No, I mean, Magic, and maybe it's a sign of a times as far as YouTube and this, that, and the other. I, I hope kids, young kids, you know, because I hear a lot of them go back and look at older players. But there, there's, I can't think of another 6'9 point guard. Obviously, Penny Hardaway was pretty tall. But LeBron can play at times. But to me... And I know the Michael Jordan fans uh, certainly cross, you know, get crossed up when I say this. I still think Magic was the most amazing player I've ever seen. So the only negative category is your biggest disappointment of the year. Biggest disappointment? Hmm. Probably, I know we're sticking with the finals, but, well, you know what, I'll say the biggest disappointment, and, and the Spurs is certainly up there. But just not getting to see what Oklahoma City would have been able to do if Russell Westbrook didn't get hurt. They were rolling. They are probably the best team in the West. They were the best team in the West. He was playing great basketball. The team seemed destined to return to the Western Conference Finals. I mean, and to the NBA Finals. And, you know, he got that injury and everything kind of fell apart. I was curious to see what Kevin Durant would be able to do but I think his supporting cast now is certainly better with Russell out than it was during the playoffs. And they just weren't being able to do it and came up short, which you know opened the door for the Spurs. And that kind of goes back to you always got to see what happens. The games have to be played. We, we can project all we want to, but you just never know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I'm always intrigued to see what happens come playoff time. Obviously, Derrick Rose is up there, too, with his injury and him being out. But I would have to say probably Russell Westbrook. On the note of unpredictability, I'll let you do your own prediction stuff at another place. But in terms of if you were LeBron James looking at two option years, what would be your decision-making process in terms of what to do from here on out? Well, to me, it, it makes sense to stay. Cleveland is doing nothing right now to show them that they're a team on the rise, that he could jump in and get them a championship, not that he couldn't. But I think from a basketball standpoint, Pat Riley has shown that he could keep a competitive team. He, you know, he had a competitive team through the morning era, through the, you know, Wade era, as I call it now, the LeBron area. They've consistently been able to stay great stay in the playoffs and figure out a way to go from one era to the next without looking like they're in a complete rebuilding mode. 
And I think Pat Riley will figure that out again. Obviously, living in Miami has got to be much more uh, exciting and warmer than living in Akron and Cleveland. His kids are custom living there now. His wife's custom living there. And she has a business now, a, a juicer business. So I, I think not only does he have to make the decision for himself, he has to make the decision for his family. And I don't know if they, obviously LeBron is the decision maker probably in, in, in the end, but I'm sure it's more of a family decision now with his now married and, and his kids getting older. You, you know, to me, I think he could always go back to Cleveland for kind of a final lap at the end. I don't know that it makes any sense to go to the Lakers right now, the way things look there. So I just think in the end, there'll probably be much ado about nothing. One thing to consider as well is he could just opt in for another year and opt out next season too. And that might make more financial sense long-term to do it that way. So it's not a complete given that LeBron will opt out. But even if he does, I expect him to stay in Miami. Yeah, I've been I've been captivated in my, my own head the last couple of weeks about the idea of even him opting in a second time and then becoming a free agent the same time Durant's a free agent and just what that could do to the league. Yeah, yeah, that that that'll certainly make it very uh, challenging for us NBA reporters, that's for sure. Since you've already pretty much hit on your best moment, who would you pick as coach of the year for 2013? Wow, that's a, that's a real hard question. Uh, you know, I have to say Spolstra. And I kind of saw it when I was covering the Celtics with Doc Rivers. Everybody thinks it's easy when you have stars. Uh, you know, Jason Kidd is saying right now it's not, you know. It, it, it's deeper than just having stars. you got to get them to be on the same page, have chemistry, push their egos aside, and play for the betterment of the franchise. And I think Spolstra has done a great job with all the players that he has of, of being able to do that and think more about the greater good, the, the title, than, hey, what, what, what is this, what's in this for me is, uh, can be the case in a lot of other places. So I, I would have to say Spolstra, he, to me, has established himself, you know, two years ago. We were like, is he going to keep his job? Is Pat Riley going to take over? You, you don't hear that anymore. He's established. He's respected. He's one of the elite coaches in the NBA right now, and, It'll probably be funny. I, I could see him coaching the Heat long after LeBron's gone. He's a young guy and end up being one of the winningest coaches ever. And you brought up a great point before about how Pat Riley can bring a, can bring a contender and his talents. And I think Spolstra now is another added value piece because players are going to want to play for him. And you said that he'll probably be coaching there after LeBron's gone. I think that players will want to play for him. And that's a great selling piece if you're already in Miami and have that advantage as well. Yeah, no, he's somebody that every college kid, every free agent knows and respects. And, hey, if LeBron James respects him and can succeed with him, why can't you? So he'll probably have, I think, success probably coaching. I wouldn't be surprised if he coaches Miami the next 15 to 20 years, man. We'll end this on asking you what if, if, if is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to seeing for the next coming year you know I'm, I'm writing about this in yahoo sports but certainly excited to see what happens when kobe gets back see if derrick rose comes back I'm curious uh, about how the 2014 nba draft is going to play out i think that's going to be one of the most exciting drafts since lebron it will be the most exciting draft since lebron comes out 
Andrew Bynum stories are obviously very odd. We'll see how that goes. And uh, we'll see if LeBron can get back to the final for a four straight time Thanks. since the Celtics um, 27 years ago. So wow. it, it, there's a lot of exciting storylines going into the, to the new year. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and keep up the excellent work. Hey, Danny. You know, I'm excited to do this. Happy to finally do it. And the fact that you're the same age as LeBron James, I think that speaks volumes. Well, thank you. Take care and hope to talk to you soon. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Thanks so much to Mark for coming on. You can read him on Yahoo, and you can also follow him on Twitter at SpearsNBAYahoo. Great read, super plugged into the league, and so happy he came on. Next up is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. He writes for ESPN and goes for a little over 20 minutes. Hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thinking about the entirety of 2013, what do you think is the biggest story of 2013? Oh, man, you just put me on the spot right away, Danny. I believe that it's Dwight Howard and that whole drama of where Dwight's going because it touches it touches a few different things. It, it changes the landscape of the West, and it also shakes just the core NBA belief that the Lakers will always be the Lakers. Suddenly the Lakers aren't the Lakers. The Lakers are marooned, and he's left them without assets, and they have to rebuild from the, from the bottom up. And that completely just shakes some foundational assumptions of NBA fans and NBA writers the league over. Do you think that they're going to have a hard job selling somebody? Let's say they don't get mellow this this coming off season. Let's say they're going into 2015 and they're looking at guys like Kevin Love, maybe Brooke Lopez. Are they going to have trouble selling those guys, or will LA still sell LA? I believe they'll have trouble until they get a piece. You need something to build upon. You can't just say, "Hey, we have great weather." You need that first piece so players know they're not just ending up in a place without any supporting talent because that's when you get blamed and that's when things go badly. I don't believe they'll get mellow because as bad as that Nick situation is, he makes the most money by staying there. He's going to stay for the check and also he, he likes playing in New York and also just really we get so caught up in whether or not somebody should get somebody that we sometimes don't answer whether they should get somebody and I'm not certain that LA should go for Carmelo Anthony or he's somebody to build around. So the positive indicator is that suddenly they're talking about unloading POW and a salary dump, essentially, which means they know they're not going anywhere this year, and they know the goal is to tank when you're going to see guys sitting out with minor injuries. So at least the Lakers have had their come-to-Jesus moment, and they know they're bad, and they know this is the only way to get good, I think. And I think you go talk about a piece. I think the other component of that with the Lakers is kind of a show of goodwill or good ability that this ownership group is going to do everything. Because I think the problem with the, the tanking thing is nice, but it also fits the narrative that maybe they're doing this more for money. And, you know, if they strike out again and let's say they go under the cap, then they're going to have to convince guys that this is still this is still Jerry Buss's team, even though Jerry Buss is no longer with us. Yeah, it'll be hard to convince fans of that. It's been fascinating to watch Lakers Twitter over the past two years or so from going to a chest-puffed triumphalism in the wake of the first White Howard deal 
to denial to more denial to more denial to eventual acceptance. That that process has been fascinating because you 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 can see that fandom's not just the same. We talk about fans like they're all the same people with the same experiences, and it's not so. If you have a strong relationship with a particular kind of team, that's going to frame how you see things, and it's going to frame your expectations. If the Lakers are the team that you root for more so than any other team, then you just have different assumptions and you, you believe different things and say you root for the Warriors. And as somebody who lived in LA for the three Pete, I and the year after with the Warriors We Believe team, that I think that there's this expectation, I think is a beautiful word for it, that the Lakers are going to be relevant and they're going to be good. And if that changes, let's I think it would take a couple of years, but if that changes I don't know how that's going to affect the psyche of their overall fan base. And obviously, as you said, fans are different things, but that's something that they've never had to face. Yeah, and so many people want to fire D'Antoni now, and you look at the situation and you go, what's the expectation here? What's the thing he should be doing that he's not doing? What, 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 did, you, what did you think? This is going to make the playoffs, this thing, this roster of, of players who just aren't very good? And I've been arguing with people over the past year or so, and I think we're finally at the point where a lot of the people who assumed that everything was going okay and it would be fine have realized that everything's not okay and it's not going to be fine and that they're at the bottom with nothing to build with and that they're not just going to go out and get the new free agent. And what's so interesting about that moment to me is I think it's directly connected to them re-signing Kobe Bryant, the star and the player that most Laker fans like better than the franchise itself, perhaps. So that part is interesting to me, that this is what eventually made them accept reality of this is a team without assets to build on going forward, and and we're, we're at the bottom. We're not the Lakers as we've come to know them anymore. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And there, I was talking or responded to something that your colleague Amin Alassan said about on a similar note. And I think that what to me what that signing did is it said, okay, you know, for the next couple of years, the Lakers aren't about winning championships, and that that is a criticism in some ways. Obviously, if you're in that championships or bust thing, then then that is a criticism. But at the same time, to a degree, it's owning what you are. And you can do that. The problem is, I feel like the only teams that can afford to do that generally are the teams in big markets because they have an advantage that they can play. Yes, they do. They have an advantage they can play, but the noise surrounding them is greater than in the small market. So, yes, you can do that. You cannot win championships for a few years, but then you're going to have to deal with a lot of media scrutiny and a lot of people really peeling back the layers and investigating what's wrong in with losing losing sucks losing's awful i, I remember we, we would go to oracle the past few years uh until last year and you would you'd feel it seep into your pores you'd feel it on your skin the feeling of just being around a long nba season of losing and i believe that's an even worse feeling if you're in a major media market that's just talking about that nonstop. And if you're a player, I, I, when you're saying that about the Warriors, I think back to when Steph was a rookie. Steph Curry said that they had lost more that season than he lost in his entire college career combined. And so you have that weighing on the players. But if you're a player who, like many of them do, as you and I know, who are aware of what the media is saying, then yeah. you you have to lose on the court, and that's terrible. Yeah. But then you're hearing yourself and your friends and your colleagues get just savaged by people and you know that your friends and your family are hearing that and that's tough and that makes it and and if it's and if it's a team like LA where that normal local media is also 
ESPN, it's Fox, it's everybody, then that can eventually tarnish your brand. And you're seeing this pride pride leading to almost, I don't know, I, I keep saying acceptance, but in the preseason, before the season, a lot of Laker writers I followed and Laker fans were very prideful of, we don't tank. That's not how we do. Maybe that's how other teams do things, but that's not the Lakers. And you look at the situation and you go, there's no other option. There's no other option. You have no other out. None. You have nothing to build on. You don't have any players. You don't have any assets. Literally, this is the only way you can get something to build upon. Tanking is the only option. I don't think tanking is the only option for every bad team, but for this team, it is the only one. There's nothing else. So eventually, they went from that rather prideful position, and I would say many of these opinions and feelings were almost a detachment from reality, founded upon a team that had had success that was almost like a detachment from reality. You know, reality was so unbelievable that it skews your perception. And now we're at a point where the Lakers have finally met reality and they know. And meeting reality, the other big one to me with that, as I said, someone who has a background living down there and a lot of friends is the, we don't beg for free agents and then the billboards for Dwight. And I think that that showed to me that was more an indictment of ownership than anything else. I think that whether or not you feel like you should do that, you need to protect the aura if you have one. Very few teams have an aura. You protect it. You don't see the Spurs really going around begging guys. And, and, you know, the teams that have that can do that. Other teams like the Knicks, the Knicks have an aura, but they don't have that. And I think that you have to protect that if you want other people to believe it. Yes, I, I, I completely believe that. And they've been humbled. And we'll see how it goes. And I, I remember a lot, of, a lot of writers, a lot of Laker fans were saying, good riddance, Dwight Howard. And I was thinking, he might be annoying. He might have not delivered on what you expected last season. But you don't have anything now. You're, you're bad without an asset. It doesn't matter if you're the Lakers. Nobody wants to be bad without an asset. That's... That's a terrible starting position. That can get you in a decade-long losing spiral, and that's what they—that's what his leaving left them with. He utterly destroyed them, and maybe they bounce back. Maybe they get this big signing in the offseason, and they tank, and they get Wiggins, and they'll bounce right back. But what I'm saying right there, that's, that's almost an unrealistic scenario. It could happen, but what's more likely is that they're, they're bad for a half decade. You talked about how the first question was kind of putting you on the spot. I'm guessing this one will be substantially easier, and that's your player of 2013. I guess it's so easy to just say LeBron, huh? (laughs) It's just so easy to say that. But what's funny about saying that he's the player of 2013, wait, my fiance had a suggestion. What was that? She says Anthony Davis. (laughs) That's not a bad suggestion. I love Anthony Davis. (laughs) I love Anthony Davis, too, but I think he he needs to stay healthy a little bit longer to get that. He's a superstar. He's an if healthy super superstar right now in the way that we think about them. And and that's great. But as far as the player of 2013, it's got it's got to be LeBron James. He just keeps getting better. He didn't do anything dramatic as far as he added this or that that made me go, oh my God, this is a game changer. He just got incrementally better in a few different facets of the game. And we had that fascinating moment in the finals where the Spurs really challenged him to hit that outside shot. And we were seeing a repeat of the Dallas situation in 2011. And eventually he came through and he demonstrated how he improved as an outside shooter. And that's what finally won it for them. That and Jesus Shuttlesworth doing the uh, Jesus Shuttlesworth thing. Yeah. And I think LeBron has done such an incredible job of turning his weaknesses into strengths. I think a lot of guys, I, I would say this with Durant, he's turned his weaknesses into neutrals, but LeBron has turned his weaknesses into strengths, yeah. which is just terrifying. 
Definitely. That's a great way to put it, where you could say the defense was a weakness earlier in his career, and now it is most definitely a weapon. And same with uh, same with shooting, perhaps, where that was a weakness, and now you you really don't want to leave him open for three. I know I, I hear on the league pass announcers, whenever LeBron shoots a wide-open three, they go, oh, well, that's that's the shot you want him taking. And I'm thinking, is it really? <laughs> you want? I'll, I'll ask yeah. you something that we've been a couple of us have been discussing on Twitter recently, which is it, do, you and I define positions. I think similarly. Would you say LeBron is the best player at all five positions right now? Not at center. I, I think he can't protect the rim. He's great at getting the occasional weak side block and chase down block, but and I'm sure you could play some good post defense. But at six foot seven in socks, I, that's just pardon the pun, too tall in order. But the other four positions, yes. Okay, uh, moving from a happy topic, the only negative one, well, we went one a little negative on the other one, is do you have a biggest disappointment of the year? The Chicago Bulls, that would be my disappointment team because I was thinking back to that moment right after the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals in 2000, it was 2011, yes, and you read the articles in the wake of that game and man, it's Derrick Rose, he's going to be the new king and he's the best player, not LeBron James, and it was this grand enthusiasm for this building era, the Thibodeau era, and that Bulls team of Derrick Rose and Joachim Noah, and it's just sort of sad and quite unexpected that this is probably how it ends, you know, that this is, that was the peak. Game one, that victory, that blowout victory of the Miami Heat in 2011, that was the peak of the Thibodeau, Derrick Rose, Bulls experience, and it's probably never getting back to that point. That, to me, is the biggest disappointment. I covered the 2011 All-Star Game, I believe it was, the one that was in L.A., and that was right as Derek. He, he, at that point, it's amazing that he won the MVP that year, but he still wasn't getting super hyped. And I was sitting with him alone at the presser, and I asked him, what do you want to do to improve your game? And he said, I want to add a post game. And my brain immediately went to, oh, my God, this guy is going to become something legitimately special. Yeah. And then now you flash forward about two years, two and a half years, and – we don't know what he's going to be, and that's just – it's so depressing to me. Yeah. And sports aren't supposed to be that depressing unless you live in Cleveland, but it's just depressing. It's depressing, and it, it's funny because in the grand scope, this is somebody from Englewood. Englewood in Chicago, which is a very dangerous neighborhood and a neighborhood that deals with a lot of poverty. So in the grand scope, things have worked out marvelously for Derrick Rose – uh, he's made millions of dollars. He's he's gotten he's gotten out of there, and uh, life's great. Except his expectation, and we define happiness by expectations, is that he was going to have this great grand career and be an NBA superstar. And if that comes to an end, yes, it's sad. What would you think of for coach of the year? I do love that Terry Stotts. That that style is so cool. I can I can watch that style. Game after game after game with the uh, with all the players circling around the perimeter uh, around Lamarcus Aldridge and shooting threes from all directions. I I, I love that. I, I want them to get their defense in order uh, somewhat, but that 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 will come, I believe. He, the job he's done, I I'm, I'm loving that right now. He's my guy. You and I have discussed this a little bit, not on the podcast, but I'm trying to figure out a way for them to get Brooke Lopez, just to con Billy King into doing that. And so not only do you have the Lopez twins, but that team would just be ludicrous. It would be, but I'm not sure that's their that's their need per se. They just, you know what they need? They just need their guards to play better defense, for Lillard to get some more experience playing defense, and for LaMarcus Aldridge, 
maybe to improve a little bit and to get a slightly better bench, and then that will fix it. Their starting lineup doesn't play awful defense. It just doesn't play great defense. And I don't want to detour this, but, man, the Warriors' defense recently. <laughs> That's a different podcast for a different day. <laughs> I just, well, I'm what all, what Warriors' else? defense. What I'll say on on the Warriors' defense is that it shows how important personnel is, and I think that you can you can do defense through personnel, and you can do it through scheme, and you can do it through attitude, and the Warriors are doing it almost entirely through personnel because I think their scheme actually makes them worse defensively, and their attitude is fine, obviously. You, but, you think the the drop, how they drop and pick and roll, makes them worse? I think it makes them weaker against great teams. I think it helps them kill bad teams, and I think that. If you're a team that wants to compete for championships, having a defensive scheme that allows teams with good ball movement to absolutely torch you is probably not the best idea. My counter to that would be that they did pretty well against the Spurs as a defense in the in the postseason. Yeah, I, th- I think pretty well might have might have overstated a little bit. I think that well, and you can make the argument that you know they collapsed in game one of that series, but they didn't collapse because of the defense necessarily. They collapsed because they took uh, a lot of bad shots. Yeah, well, I, I think that game one was combination of factors. One of them was, and people don't like to hear this. I look, I thought that the Warriors in part won game six against the Nuggets because they got a very favorable whistle, and that can happen at home. I thought that a huge element of the collapse against the Spurs was, frankly, terrible calls. And I don't believe that's being a homer. It's just acknowledging that the referees have an impact on the games in these high-leverage moments. And when you're at home, that often can swing a certain way. And against there were so many calls that swung that collapse, com- combined with the Warriors playing badly. I mean, that also has to happen. For a historical collapse of that nature to occur, it needs to be multifactorial. You need to have a few different things happening at once. So Spurs playing wonderfully, Warriors playing badly, and the call swinging a certain way. And it certainly doesn't help when Richard Jefferson is playing at an important moment. No, it does not. That He is the harbinger of doom. <laughs> So uh, final question in all this is your moment of the year. I want to go with, you know, the moment of the year to me, and I believe it was 2013. It might have it might have been the year before, but I believe it was 2013. The moment that shook me to my core was after what Kevin McHale had to deal with, with I believe it was his, his daughter passing away. Um, yes. When they played Celtics and Kevin Garnett went over – and they exchanged this long hug, and it looked like Mikhail was shaking and crying. That I, I'm a sentimentalist. That was because you thought back to Kevin McHale scouting Garnett as a teenager, and now Garnett is a grown man, a middle-aged man, and he's comforting Mikhail after Mikhail was almost like this father figure to Garnett. That that was the moment that will stick in my mind for a long time. And as far as basketball moments go, of course, three Allen three. But yeah, that was the most poignant moment to me. It was the Kevin Garnett, McHale thing. And that moment reminded me, and I think you and I see this a little bit when we go in locker rooms, of just how it's more than just the guys on the court. And I think that sometimes people think of it as a video game, and you think, oh, well, they should do this and do that differently. And then remembering that these are individual people. These are people with stories. These are people with connections. And that it just kind of everything else went by the wayside. And it was just a beautiful moment between two people that happened to be on television. Yes, exactly. They, these are human beings. <laughs> they, they have shared histories. It's uh, not just a video game. And that, that, I, that was a beautifully, a beautiful and a beautifully sad reminder of that. 
bonus question because I realized you'd be a great person to ask this to. Is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to since we're recording this on New Year's Day uh, for 2014 in terms of the NBA? Yes. Uh, speaking of the Warriors' defense, I want to see Andrew Bogut, Draymond Green, and Iguodala on the court at the same time. I want to see what happens. Do you see that happening through Draymond replacing David Lee or going to something where Iguodala plays the two and Draymond plays the three? I'm not sure. I just want to see it more in stretches. It doesn't have to be their primary lineup. Uh, they, that combo has just been on the floor so rarely, and it, it just seems like it would be defensive fire. When it, whenever Draymond and Iguodala are on the court together, uh, I think they're, I think they've been holding teams to below 80 points uh, per 100 possessions, and adding Bogut to that mix, I, I'm just excited to see that. I've I've gotten addicted to watching defense this season. <laughs> One of my favorite answers so far in the last couple of years was I asked Draymond about that a couple of weeks ago. You weren't, you weren't, you might not have seen it, so this is kind of funny. And I said, well, do you guys have a lot more defensive potential since you and Iguodala at that point had played so little together? And his eyes lit up, and he said, yeah. And he kind of got, kind of got juiced about it. And then he immediately, because he's Draymond Green, went into, oh yeah, and Clay and all Clay and everybody else, they're really good <laughs> defenders too. And I just saw him kind of in his brain going, oh yeah, we could be really good at that. And Bogut adds that at their degree. And if they get back Festus Azili at some point, that's a light version of what that could be. Yeah. But I think that what the story, of, the story of 2014 and the Warriors are a good example of this could be teams embracing kind of different lineups and different configurations of players, not necessarily as their starting lineup, but giving them meaningful minutes. We've seen the Heat do this, and I think that's something that other teams could start emulating in ways that aren't necessarily their starting lineup for teams that have more balanced rotations. Exactly. They can keep it. Hey, that starting lineup's been killing it. They don't have to, they don't have to change anything there. They just need to change some of what they do uh, with the reserve units, with staggering those minutes, because that bench mob they have, that is, <laughs> I, I do not think that should see any, if they, should they make the playoffs, I do not think that should see a minute in the playoffs. It's interesting, that I think we're, we might actually see some of that fading away, and Oklahoma City got bailed out by how good Reggie Jackson has been, because they used to have that as a problem. I just used to sit there and go, wait, why are they always sitting Westbrook and Durant at the same time? Mm -hmm. And we could see more teams go in that direction. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Miami juggles their minutes when their guys are actually playing all the time. Yeah, definitely. Miami seems to have a better handle on, on what they're what they're doing minutes wise and they also have that added advantage of not really caring the the, the games do not matter uh, to the Miami Heat they have that Eastern Conference advantage where they can roll out of bed and get a second seed should they want it so that's a different that's a, that's a different situation to experiment with than in the West where you got to win those games well thank you so much for coming on have a great New Year's and I'll sure talk to you early in 2014 thanks for having me on Danny Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for coming on. You can read him on ESPN, and you can also follow him on Twitter, at Sherwood-Strauss. That's S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. -S. One addendum to our conversation is that the nice moment we discussed between Kevin Garnett and Kevin McHale actually occurred in December of 2012 which puts it outside of the purview of the 2013 year in review. I made the personal decision that I liked the conversation and thought it added to the podcast, so to keep it in the podcast, but to add that addendum, was a really wonderful moment. I think it was underreported at the time, so I chose to keep it in there. 
Moving on, next guest is Arturo Galetti. He writes for the incomparable BoxScoreGeeks.com. It's a really great site. I love reading it, and he's a great basketball mind. I really wanted to have him on this podcast. Runs about 20 minutes. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much to Arturo for coming on. Hey, Danny. How you doing? Doing well. Let's start out with your pick for the story of the year for all of 2013. Well, I mean, I think it's simple, and we forget it, which is we had – we. I honestly, you know, I've been watching basketball for a long time now. I'm an oldie. I can – I can remember like short shorts and and like uh, Bird and George and Bird and Magic as rookies. So I mean, when I say this, it's it's with the way of history. But th- this was the we had the greatest finals I have ever seen in my lifetime, and I don't think we're gonna have. I mean, I, I would I would think we'd be lucky if we see anything like this again in our lifetime. I mean, I, we had a finals featuring. You know, there's two guys in, in that final plane that can make an argument for being the best player at the position of all time. There's, I think, by my count, seven or eight Hall of Famers that were on the floor. It was hotly contested. It was beautiful basketball, smartly coached. There was just everything in that series. You know, you had somebody like Kyle Leonard just ma- just taking the leap and, and just guarding LeBron to stand still for a while, then LeBron just taking it home. You had Tim Duncan with the callback game. You had Ray Allen making perhaps the greatest shot in a, in a finals ever. You know, it was, as I said, you know, I mean, I, I honestly, my, my fondest wish would be we could get another seven games of that. I don't know if it's going to happen. I think it's a good chance, but I think we would be we'd be blessed if we could get some more games of that. There were also plenty of legacy implications because I think that the LeBron and the Heat angle of it has been well discussed, but the Spurs had a chance to do something truly remarkable in terms of winning another title so far removed with the same core that had already done so well. Well, I think that's kind of deceptive, and I think that's and I made that mistake when when judging that that Spurs team when uh, I, I kind of messed up a little bit when I had them the not last year the year before where they won the ten games and, and and then kind of ran out of steam in the in the conference finals. And I think you, you view them like that and you view them wrong because really the core isn't the three guys. The core is the rest of the team. And this is where, like, we, we mess it up. We're, we're like, you know, historically, and, and we do these meta-historical models for finals, and, and you have these teams that kind of have to grow up and they have to fail because there are certain variables going against them. And that Spurs team two years ago, you know, the guys who were key, the Danny Greens, Tiago Splitters, the Kyle Leonards, you know, the, the, the guys, the second unit guys are the guys who kind of, you know, just weren't there two years ago. And, you know, if you saw them last year, they were much, much better. And even now, you know, you look at somebody like Splitter, and Splitter's a guy who, you know, he kind of fades. He has this tendency to fade in big moments, and, and he's been kind of a different cat this year. I mean, he, he you can see the growth of his play. I mean, Kawhi Leonard's always been great in, in these moments, but, like, you could see that some of these guys kind of matured, and that's kind of helped. I mean, look, Tony and, 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 and Manu and Tim are who they are, right? But they're not – it's not what they were when they won their last title. They're kind of – really, if you look at it, they're supporting role guys. It's, it's a lot about – you know, I, I was telling this somebody else the other day when, when the three guys were out and they were playing Golden State and they were like, oh, no, Golden State's going to kill them. And I'm like, no, 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 look, I look, at a, I look at a San Antonio Spurs games and I'm like, is Cowie Leonard playing? If he's playing, they've got a chance to win. And, and you know, so I, and I called it before the game. I said, look, it's going to be close, and I think these guys have a real shot at winning. And then the, the, the next game, Kawhi was out, and they got killed because, really, he's kind of the key. The, the second unit guys are kind of the key for that team. And it's the beauty of the organization is they've been able to kind of find these guys and build this team. And, really, you kind of have, you know, even if you took, and I've said this, if you take, if you take Tim and Tony and Manu out of that team, that team's still probably a 50-win team if Pop is coaching them particularly if they were playing in the East. Yeah, and I think that 
people sometimes lose sight of just how good things like ball movement and everything like that is on this team and that they can get contributions because they put everybody in the right place to succeed. Yeah, no, and, and again, they do a great job at identifying talent. I think one of the first things they do a great job at identifying talent, the second the thing they do is they make sure that they maximize the value they get from their players. And, and we, we, we've done these studies that say that, what is it, like uh, the coach doesn't matter. Uh, Dave Barry's done these studies, and they're great. I think the coach doesn't matter, and the conclusion is it doesn't matter unless he's Pop or Phil, right? Because the system, the way it works, and you're actually kind of seeing this with a lot of the guys that are that are Spurs disciples that are going to other teams, which is it's about putting the guy in the right position, right? So it's it's about taking Marco Bellinelli and, and having him get open looks that he wasn't getting in another team that he was playing. This is why he's hitting these crazy percentages because you're putting him, he's a guy who, you know, if you were playing him on a street court and you were leaving it open, he would hit every shot. It's, it's kind of the same deal. It's how you maximize what you get out of the guys you have. So it's, it's, it's knowing what you have and getting the max value out of them. That all makes perfect sense. So we'll move on to the biggest disappointment of 2013 for you. I think the biggest disappointment of 2013 really has been the spate of injuries that we've had. And, and, I, and, and I say that, you know, because, you know, we're not getting the chance to see some of these stories play out. I mean, I, I, I was one that believed that, you know, Kobe wasn't really going to be a good fit for this Lakers team, right? And, you know, we're, we're, we're in essence getting, we're, we're getting the Lakers tanking, and we're not going to get to see what happened. I think that, I think last year we had the, 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 a T-Wolves team which should have been good and got hurt and, and wasn't there. And I would have loved to see that team. I think that, and, and, and I think, you know, some of the guys we've lost, we've lost Derek Rose, we've lost, you know, we don't have Rondo right now. Things that, you know, would be nice, to, guys would be nice to have, which would make the league even better. I think the other thing that actually kind of disappoints me, and I think this is going to be an ongoing story going forward to 2014, is we're going to have some incredibly good teams and incredibly fun teams that are not going to make the playoffs. And that's going to be really, really sad. And we're going to have some really crappy teams make the playoffs. And that's going to be really, really sad. I mean, we're, we're not there, – there's a real chance that, you know, I was watching – imagine the playoff series between Portland and, and Golden State because I think there's a chance we're not going to get that, right? And I think Phoenix, which, which is a great team, is going to be out. And I think that the fact that the league is so unbalanced is, is a big problem, particularly – the other thing which is coming is we're looking at a possibility of an, an, historically, an historical rate of blowouts. You know, I've been starting. I've done the numbers. I know if you've seen it when I posted those, but we're we're in process. We're already kind of we're kind of already past where we should be in terms of percentage of blowouts, and it's only going to get worse as the season goes on. So I think we're 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 due to for some re- after some really great basketball. We're due for some really bad basketball coming up. If you could control and maneuver the playoff process into whatever you wanted, what would you like to see? Well, I think, and, and, I, and I've actually written this down, and I think it would be fun. I would say, look, I would have a, 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 a another round in the playoffs, and this round would be the following. If you have a team in a conference, so if I have an Eastern Conference team that has a worse record than a Western Conference team, so let's say if the ninth seed in the West has a better record than the fifth seed in the, in the East, I would have those, the, the ninth play the fifth, the 10th play the 6th and all the way down, have those four teams from the West play the four teams from the East in a three-game series over a week. And you play the two games. like So basically, the, the team in the East that actually has a playoff spot will get two home games. You play, three, uh, you play three games over the course of a week, and you do it immediately after the season. I think it would be fantastic television. And we also get more playoff games, so I think there's nothing wrong with that. And again, I think if you start looking at the matchups that you would see, I think they were really fun. I think at one point I had the Lakers as a 12th seed playing the, uh, the Pistons in round one, which would be kind of fun. 
be fun. What I've thought for a couple years now, I'm obsessed with the idea of the teams at the highest end being able to choose their opponents within a range. So how I would do it is I would do a top 16, not by division, not by conference, and allow, so the top eight are safe, and then say, okay, number one seed, whoever that is, you can pick whoever of the next eight you want to face. And I think that it would, first of all, it would lead to a more direct advantage for finishing higher so that those teams would never take their foot off the gas pedal. And also, it would make it so that there would be a fair incentive. So a situation like that year that Gilbert Arenas and Jameson both got hurt, but I think the or the Wizards were like the sixth seed, that the three seed doesn't benefit instead of the one because they sh I think that they should get the benefit of doing the best. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it. I mean, I think I think... The point has to be it has to be something where the where the owners are incentivized. So this is why I like having an extra round because you're getting an extra week of playoff games, which you can sell to a you can sell, you can sell these games, right? So you can you can make money off of these games. So I think that's why I like. I, I like somebody else kind of floated the idea of having kind of a, an A league and a B league where like all the lottery teams are in the B league, and all the uh, playoff teams get in the A league, and it kind of changes every year. And so. The bottom four teams in the A League at the end of the season have to play the top four teams in the uh, in the B League for the uh, for the last playoff spots. Oh, and the guys who are in the B League don't get to play national games, so they make less uh, less money. Oh, and all the rookies go into the B League, not the A League. So all the interesting. So the, and uh, the guy was telling me, I was like, oh, that that would be kind of fun. I think that I mean, if we're if we're gonna we'll go that path, I think the best suggestion I heard was like the the bottom three teams in the league don't actually have a shot. They can get the fourth seed. They, they get the fourth pick in the draft. They can they can't get one of the top three. That was Mark Cuban, I think. Yeah, we could we could do a fun podcast sometime of just having people talk about how they would fix the playoffs in the draft. I might actually do that at some point. Yeah. But we'll move on to player of the year for for 2013. Well, I mean, I think there's there's absolutely no question who this is. I mean, we and and I'm in the process of writing this and this has been I know this has been an ongoing discussion, but but LeBron James is making his case for the greatest player of all time. And and I know we we view this through a a Jordan colored glasses and and I've done some breakdowns to start looking at the numbers and if you really look at like if you look at LeBron James versus Michael Jordan from the from the ages of 21 through 29, right? LeBron has more rings. LeBron has more MVPs. LeBron has more All-Star appearances. Basically, LeBron beats him in about every single award category. I mean, you have to look at 21 to 29, and then you keep in mind that that Jordan kind of went off for three years. So I mean, you know, this is this year really kind of provides a difference. I mean, honestly, the only player that really has an argument. If you look at that, the ages 21 through 29 is really Magic Johnson, and I think the Magic Johnson argument kind of comes down to how much you you value defense. So I mean, LeBron James is, is is the greatest player we've seen, and I think one of the greatest players you know we'll get a chance to see because again we've never had a guy who could do everything on a basketball court. He can basically drive your offense and, and move the ball up up and down the floor. He can drive if you need him. He can post up. He can protect the rim. He can do anything you need him to do in a basketball court. So if you were stand if you were start if you need to clone a guy to start a team, he's the guy you clone because he can do he can basically play every single position. Even now he's been hurt lately and he's been basically playing shooting guard for the he's been basically posting up and taking shots from from distance and he makes them. So I mean he, there's nothing on a basketball court that he can't do. When you're figuring out or making arguments in terms of greatest of all time, how do you balance the pressures of peak value or peak performance versus the rest of the career? I think generally when I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm looking at Hall of Fame arguments, I, I look for, generally when I'm doing this, I look at six-year peaks, but I try to compare guys at, at similar ages. So I think it's unfair, for example, to look at, say, Jordan's rookie season versus LeBron's rookie season, where LeBron's coming into the league at 19, right? 
and Jordan's coming into the league at 23, right? So you, you kind of have to say, look, let's look at them when they were the same age, same physical development, same experience on a basketball court. And I think the other thing is you have to take into account, does the guy have like the period? So take that six-year window. I, I need the guy to have at least a six-year window for me to compare against. And that's what I'm kind of looking at. And again, I understand it's like, so there are guys in the league right now who've already done enough for me to be a Hall of Famer, Chris Paul, LeBron, and Kevin Durant are guys who've already got, they already have that six-year resume to submit. So if, if, God forbid, Kevin Durant never played basketball again, I'd still consider him an all-time great because he's already submitted the body of work and he's already gotten it done in different forms and he's already done it, right? So that's kind of how I view it. So you, you kind of have to account because you can't account for the fact that you know, somebody blew out a knee. So Bernard King blew out his knee. Does that make him a bad player? Not really, no. I mean, the, you know, Dwayne Wade looks like he's breaking down. He's not going to have, like, the, the, the longest career possibly. Well, he's already submitted a, a, a fantastic resume for me to kind of judge him on. He's already an all-time great at that position. That makes a lot of sense. I've been having trouble reconciling that myself. For coach of the year, what, did, what was your choice there? Is Greg Popovich coaching? Greg Popovich should be the coach of the year. I mean, I, I think, you know, Phil Cano could always make the argument he was in. I mean, you can make an argument for Spo, but, you know, I, I think what, what, what Popovich does year in and year out and the amount of years that he's made the playoffs and had 51 teams and how good that organization is. And, look, you, you, go, you, you were on the floor at Sloan, and you talked to people on the floor in the know – from the teams, and you know how everybody views these Spurs, right? And and that all comes from Pop, and they have the best organization, and it, it shows on the court, and it shows everywhere else. And, and he, he he is he, he basically is our our our, uh, our coach of the year for life, really. And again, they give it to somebody else, but I mean, he's the coach of the year for life until something changes. And I feel like that that you you bring the point up with Pop, and I think the same could be said many years for for RC that he doesn't win Executive of the Year and as much as he should, considering how amazing he is. And maybe it's an issue. I, I mean, obviously those kind of awards don't matter in the scope of everything, but it feels like the sheer kind of amazing power of what that organization has done in a small market, which in in the NBA matters a lot. That it's it's absolutely incredible. In a small market that has to give one-seventh of their TV revenue to the owners of the Spirits of St. Louis, it, it should be brought to mind that they, they actually operate at a, not just a small market handicap, but an actual fiscal handicap because of the fact that they're an ex-ABA team. I hadn't even ever considered that. That's amazing. They're, they're, so when you, It's really kind of insane that they make less money. So basically, for people who don't know, that means the, the Spurs have to take one-seventh of the money they get from the league from TV revenue and give it to the owners of the Spirits of St. Louis. So they start, basically, fiscally, they start with tax that other teams don't have. So that's, that's so it just makes their success just, just, just kind of ridiculous when you view it in that, in that filter. Do you have an idea, this might be more, more inside than either of us have, but do you have any, any idea who they're envisioning as a coach after Pop leaves? It's an interesting question. They keep bringing guys in. I know their 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 assistant head coach. The last is the guy who's uh, Brent Brown, who's uh, coaching uh, Philly now, and they keep finding these guys. I think I think what's important with that organization is the fact that how should I put this? They have a structure and they have guys. It's like it's like a, it's more like a major league baseball team where they have guys who know their system, who are coaching in AAA and AA, and they have guys who like you know, they got they've got guys on the Toros, they've got guys on the bench, they've got guys on other teams. You know, I, I don't think they're going to have a problem. With, I mean, I think Pop is great. I think, they'll, I think they'll be able to identify and bring in somebody of his school to actually kind of take over for him. I think the other important bit that people forget is, like, I think the other thing is they're, the organizationally how they look at players and how they evaluate talent, how the organization is built, that doesn't go away. So I, I do think that, you know, as long as, 
you know, the, the organization is what it is and they have the ownership that lets them have it, I think they'll be, they'll be great. I think, again, I'm not going to underrate Pop. I'm just saying that it, I, I'm, I'm saying that in, in, in corporate leadership, uh, if we were talking corporate, he's a what they call a level five, a next, uh, like a level five leader, which means I think he can walk away and his organization would still function without him. It's not like Phil walking away and, and or like Dr. Dr. Buss dying and, and, you know, the Lakers kind of collapsing as we've seen them. It, it's more like, you know, he's, there's something there that is greater than Popovich. And this is not a knock on Popovich. It's actually a, a favorable judgment. I think he's built something stronger than himself. That's a beautiful point, and I, I agree completely, and especially as long as Buford's there. And also, we don't know if, considering Pop's background, if he'll want to go into the front office, because that would help continuity as well. Well, Pop already, he already was the GM. He, he basically, he was yeah. the GM, and he, and he took over the uh, as the bench coach. So, no, I mean, I think given the fact that he looks like he's a guy who enjoys what he does and he uh, he likes where he lives and he likes the community, I, I think he's a guy who's going to be involved with that team until he, you know, until he until he can't be. Last category is your best moment of 2013. You know, the trophy was on the floor. The trophy was it was on the floor. You, you could see it from the from the, you, you could see it. It was there. And, you know, it was just a crazy microcosm of everything that happens. And, and that crazy ball, it bounced a certain way. Bosch gets the rebound. He passes the ball out, and Ray just nails it. And, I mean, there were, there were, there were like, the, the percents on the percentages on that play happening the exact way it happened have to be so small. I mean, it, it's just one of the things that, you know, we saw in the moment. And, again, that series, it, it was just everything. I mean, as a basketball fan, I can ask for more, and I think that 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 that's the craziest thing, and, and one of the best games you know I, I've ever seen. And again, it's still kind of you know six months. You know, we're going what six seven months later, and you know, still I can still see the play in my head. I can still see. You know, I was sitting and watching, and I was like, you know, and I thought like that. You know, this is over, and I mean, it was just great. I mean, I think it's something that we'll remember twenty years from now. You know. And it's also for me that that you have a game, and Game Seven gets should get some pub as well. That was so well played and that was so exciting with that high stakes. Because the NBA is a sport like a lot of other sports where there are many great games that happen that don't have those kind of stakes. But this was this was a game that could have that should have decided the championship. And to see it be that amazing and be that close and have what ended up happening was just. It was amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, again, you, you have to think about what's the indelible image you're going to have in your head. And, and I think clearly it's going to be, you know, it's that sequence of events. It's Kawhi missing the free throw. It's Duncan missing the bunny. It's And, again, it's one of those things that he had the shot. I mean, and you can't you can't be mad at him because, you know, he had, he had an all-time game. He basically called up the ghost, and he was fantastic in that game. And then, you, you know, you had Ray kind of just stepping back and, and, and doing it. And it, it, people kind of underrate the fact that he didn't even look down when he actually stepped back into the for three. And, again, the fact that, like, you know, kind of pop-cocked it up by not having Tim on the on the floor. And I remember just being so mad and tweeting about it at the time. It was like, I didn't understand why he didn't have it on the floor. And But, again, it, it's one of those crazy things where the ball had to bounce bounce a certain way, right? And, you know, and, 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 and Wade had to, had to basically – you know, stretch and Bosch had to stretch, and there's so many things that had to happen just right. And and again, it was all these guys playing at the top level, and so many Hall of Famers and so many all-time greats playing in that game. That that just makes it just kind of next level. And, and as I said, this is why I think you know, I, as much as I like Indiana, and as much as I like uh, some of these other teams, I'd feel kind of cheated if we don't get a rematch, right? I, I think 
you know, it, it, it kind of, it would be the best or the most Hollywood thing for us to have seven more games of this, right? And, and, and again, I love Indiana. I think Indiana is going to win one, you know, and, and, and I say this, you know, they're either going to win one or they're going to make it to the finals, right? So they're, they're like that Knicks team that used to kind of go against those Bulls teams. You know, they, they, once, they, 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 they eventually got on the stage. They, could, they couldn't get it done because, I mean, I think Patrick was a little too done at the time, and I think they ran into, you know, the beast that was Hakeem. But I think we need – I mean, again, as a basketball fan, I really want it, right? So, I mean, I, I think we're not going to – it's a different – Indiana's a different style of team. And this is not a knock on Indiana, but, I mean, I think us getting the chance to see these guys kind of work their magic at that level – is not something we're going to get a lot of chances to. And again, if Indiana makes it, I think that'll be it'll be a great finals. I think, and I've said this, I think there's absolutely zero chance that we get it in San Antonio, Indiana finals because I think the the league would just throw their body at it. Like you know, it would be it would be one of you know you'd be seeing all these mysterious ejections in Game Seven. I, and again, I'm being kind of facetious on that, but I mean I think there's there's such an economic incentive for it not to happen that the league will do what, what it can for it not to have an All ABA finals. But I mean I think. I mean, I think Indiana. Like, I, I'm more, I'm more willing to buy something like Indiana, Houston, or Indiana. Okay, so even though Indiana, OKC okay, so is not the greatest TV matchup in the world. I mean, if you have the option of having a Miami San Antonio rematch or that, I, I think we're, I, I think you know where the calls are going to fall. I think we can hear the sound of Sacramento fans crying in agreement uh, with with that kind of assessment. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's just, I mean, it's just the way it kind of goes. I mean, it, we know that there's some there's some. There's some there's some unconscious incentives happening that kind of drive the thing, and if it's going to be close, it can make a difference. I, I mean, it was a great stat. I think I think I think LeBron James gotten thrown out has gotten thrown out. I think three or four has gotten fouled out like three or four times in his career, and I think three of them have been Eastern Conference Finals where I think Joey Crawford's been refing, which has been a like it just ooh how weird that LeBron gets the foul call on a game where like the league would really want Miami to lose. Hmm, strange. And it's the only times that ever happened in his career. I don't have to stand in front of me, but it's something really suspicious. It's like once in Cleveland and then like a couple of times with Miami in uh, Eastern Conference Finals game when, where like it was critical that Miami lose to stretch the series out. Yeah, it's, I, I, I don't have it on, off the top of my head, but I think it's something like three out of five or three out of four. It's something ludicrous like yeah, that. Yeah, and you, when you start seeing these things, you, you start going, well, there, there is some, there is some you know, it, what is it? It's, 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 once is, is bad luck, two is coincidence, and, and three is enemy action. So this is, <laughs> this is more like enemy action, guys. And on that fun conspiratorial note, uh, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Okay, thanks, Danny. Nice, nice to be Take here. Take care. Thanks again to Arturo for coming on. You can read him at the excellent boxscoregeeks.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Arturo Galletti. That's A-R-T-U-R-O-G-A-L-L-E-T-T-I. Last but certainly not least in this part one of the Year in Review podcast is Ed Mazinet. He writes for Slam Magazine, and he also co-created and helps run the Sports Fan Journal, which is a, another really fun read. So runs a little under 20 minutes, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, Dad, for coming on. Thank you, my brother, Danny LaRue. How are you doing this afternoon, brother? Doing well, recording this on New Year's Eve. So we'll, we're actually doing a year in review on the last day of the year. That's the only way to do it. That, this, is, this is perfect. What is your pick for the story of 2013? What is my pick for the story of 2013? I think the easy answer would be to talk about successes. In particular, we look at what's going on with the Indiana Pacers, we look at what's going on with the Portland Trailblazers, um, and those stories are fun. 
But to be honest, I think the stories are the failures of 2013, at least in what's beginning with the 2013 season, 2013-2014 season, and how bad, how egregiously bad the Knicks and the Nets are with the amount of money that's being spent in Brooklyn to the... You couldn't make the things up that is happening right now with the New York Knicks, everything that's going on with J.R. Smith and his brother Chris Smith and Carmelo Anthony looking befuddled as his team finds new ways to lose games. Um, and then I think the third team to think about, too, as far as failures right now are the Los Angeles Lakers. And I think that's probably something that's being taken for granted because I think the story at the beginning of the 2013-14 season was that, you know, maybe the Lakers should tank with uh, Kobe Bryant being sidelined with his major Achilles injury um, and a roster that looked like 12 guys that probably eight of them I'd probably never heard of before, or I was curious if they were still in the NBA or not. And now they're in a situation where on the last day of 2013, they're talking about trading for Andrew Bynum and waiving him in, a, in an effort to cut salary to get under the cap so they don't have to pay the tax, which, you know, God rest his soul, Dr. Jerry Buss would probably never think of doing such a thing. So it's such a dynamic shift into what we're what we used to think about with the Lakers and where they're at currently and really they they're in a position where they're in a they can actually tank and they're actually trying to win which is kind of sad and tragic in a way but in in another way it might be the best thing that ever happens to them because right now they're going to be in contention for a number 5 pick they're going to be able to clear a lot of cap space if they execute the deal with the Cavaliers. And y'all, and the most curious thing about all of it is, I wonder how Kobe Bryant feels about the shenanigans and tomfoolery that's happening as we speak. Do you feel that any of those done permanent damage, not necessarily permanent, but significant damage to their brands by this kind of open failure? I don't. I I, I think brands are meant to be repaired, and most brands can survive something like this. I mean, the Knicks are still the Knicks. The Nets, the funny thing is about the Nets is the Nets tried to acquire Cool, and they tried to buy Cool. And I think by and large, they failed successfully. And as my brother Kenny Masenda says, we're not calling them the Brooklyn Nets anymore. We should just go back to calling them the New Jersey Nets. So that way, at least our expectations would continually be very low. But when they're bumbling and stumbling up, up and down the basketball court, it's not going to be a surprise. Um, because I think that's what we're used to seeing on the Nets is them being a mediocre franchise at best, minus the Jason Kidd era, which coincidentally now he's the head coach and they're terrible somehow. As far as the Lakers are concerned, so much of this hinges on Kobe Bryant, and I don't think the Lakers' legacy or brand will really be altered, but it's going to be interesting to see what Kobe, this, how this, these next two years look for Kobe. It's funny because Kanye West, did a song at his concert called We Should Have Never Let MJ Play for the Wizards, which is hilarious. But you wonder how damaging that two-year $48 million deal that he signed is, how much of an impact is it really going to have on that team? Because I'm beginning to wonder if if a free agent is going to want to sign up for another two years with Kobe Bryant and his battered body. And, that coach, that coach and Mike D'Antoni, and that current ownership, and the lack of stability that's there. So, if, if if any of the three, I think the one that has the biggest damage is probably the Lakers, but maybe not for roster reasons, more so just because of the state of the franchise. 
With the Lakers, the challenge is going to be that if they try to get somebody in 2015, and that would be Kevin Love, they have to convince them that they're going to be able to get somebody. It's not going to be a situation like what Miami did, where they're selling two people or three people at the same time, which is an easier pitch because the players can sell each other. When you're trying to get a guy first and then get everybody else, you're selling faith, basically. Yep. And that can work. You know, that there have been situations where that has worked. And, but it's, it's a harder sell than saying, see, look, you guys can talk. You guys, are gonna, you guys can play together if you want. Yes, and I think part of that faith in 2015 will, will revolve around what happens in the 2014 NBA draft because, you know, if the Lakers are truly terrible and they end up getting a lottery pick and let's just say they get the number five pick and they get someone like Marcus Smart, I mean, I think that is a good enough of a reason to say, hey, I want to bring my talents to Los Angeles if I'm Kevin Love or if I'm anybody else, I refuse to say Russell Westbrook's name because, you know, I have ties to Oklahoma City. But whoever the free agents are going to be in 2015, um, I think that draft pick is going to mean a lot. And if you get if they are able to get someone like Smart, Wiggins, Randall, Parker, somebody like Dante Exum out of Australia, someone like that, um, I think it could make a world of difference. And they're the only one of those three teams that has their own draft pick, so they still they can they can hold on to that shining light at least for the rest of this year. Exactly. Who would you say is the player of 2013 most outstanding? I don't like most valuable because that gets sticky, but most outstanding, let's say. Most outstanding. Okay. Well, I think really what we should call these awards are who impresses you the most outside of LeBron James because. Any award, outstanding or valuable, the, the answer is LeBron. So I just probably should make that clear. But if you made me choose someone outside of that, I'm going to be a homer and I'm going to say Kevin Durant. Absolutely. I mean, good God. I mean, the season that he's having right now, going into 2014, he is quietly exceeding even the expectations that I think we've had of him in previous years and what his performance has been like. The fact that Oklahoma City's chugging right along, even though, you know, now Westbrook's gone for another two months until the All-Star break. They had to play without Westbrook earlier in the season. You know, Kevin Durant has largely just taken this in stride. He hasn't complained. His scoring numbers um, are still fantastic. And there's just a sense of calmness that I've seen with KD a little bit more than what I've seen in previous years where, you know, he's always been, you know, that OKC team, as, as much as I love them, they, they have a tendency to be a bit whiny and, you know, they kind of get caught up in the moment from time to time. And that's in no part, that's in, that's in all parts of guys like Westbrook and Perkins, but also from Durant, they get hot headed, they get a little emotional, but watching them this season, I think they, they actually seem pretty calm and collected um, and I think part of that may be because of the young talent around KD, Russ, and Ibaka starting to come shine in the light with Reggie Jackson and Jeremy Lamb and the like. But if you made me, if I had to make a choice right now, it would definitely be Kevin Durant. His shooting per- percentages are stellar. Uh, they have the best record in the NBA, I believe, still 25-5. And that conference is even more loaded than it has been in previous years in the West. Um, but I think he deserves that recognition for being the leader um, of that team. And he's such a fascinating player because he succeeds in a way that is different from a lot of guys because he, he shoots really well and, and that gets a lot of credit, but he's a very, he's become a much better passer and he's become a much better defender. And though he's not at the level of LeBron as either of those things, that increase, basically taking away his negatives has made him an even better player. Absolutely. And, and again, I think 
yeah, he's he's rebounding a lot. He's defending. I think we he he needs to start at least getting into the conversation of being one of the better perimeter defenders in the NBA. I don't. I'm not going to sit here and call him a lead. I don't want to. I don't want to toot his horn that much. But I mean, he he holds his own. And the thing that I notice about him is he never backs away from those challenges. He's always been very accepting of them. And I think that permeates into the entire team where they're not afraid to defend. And I think that really goes a long way when they have to face these tough teams in the West. So absolutely, I agree with you, Danny, 100%. Weird idea I've had because we are talking about the, the difference between most valuable and most outstanding. I would love for the NBA to give both awards separately and then have a separate trophy that goes around, an actual trophy, kind of like the Stanley Cup, to a player that gets both the same year. So to make that a really special accomplishment, because I feel like people conflate the two too often, and that leads to people like Derrick Rose getting the MVP when he didn't deserve it. And it'd be fun to see kind of a league embrace the difference between those two things. Well, the NFL does that currently with their MVP versus the Offensive Player of the Year. Um, I think you're probably going to see that this year where you're going to see Peyton Manning win the MVP but Jamal Charles is probably going to win Offensive Player of the Year. And I think there's something to be said about that for sure. And if you were going to give that, the, the, the only difference is, I mean, yeah, I think LeBron would definitely get the MVP, but I think you're going to hear a lot of people that's going to say, well, maybe Paul George should get the most outstanding player, or maybe you give it to someone like LaMarcus Aldridge or Kevin Durant or, you know, someone like that. It's still hard to make the case to not give it to anyone, not name LeBron James. And I hate, and I think we're in such an anomaly right now. And I, and I hate to say it, but we're really in like Jordan territory, where there's no reason to even make the delineation as to who it is, and like just stop fighting it. Uh, and maybe you're right. Maybe we gave Derrick Rose the MVP award in a way that we gave it to Karl Malone uh, with the MVP back in '97, I believe '97, '98. But I don't know, Danny. I I I don't know who I would even. I, I will. Oh, let me say this. I, I could make a consideration for Kevin Love just because his numbers are so ridiculously gaudy that I was doing some – I was looking back at some past stats of big men in NBA history, and, like, his numbers are only comparable to guys like Shaq and Olajuwon and Kareem and those guys with the amount of points that he's scoring and the amount of rebounds that he's getting on a nightly basis. Um, it's incredible. And he's doing it on a team that isn't terrible. I, there, was an, there was a discussion on Twitter a couple of days ago about, oh, would you take Love or Bosch? And I was thinking that even having that discussion, as Bosch is a wonderful player, I'm not knocking him in the slightest, it just, to me, it shows just how underappreciated Love is because we talk about value. No one else can do what he does. Well, yeah. Except for yeah, LeBron, maybe. But, like, if LeBron wanted to do what Kevin does, he might be able to. But other than him. Well, what do you mean? Go into detail. I mean, are you, are we strictly saying from his ability to to shoot the three? What are we What are we saying? A guy who is among he's a, he's higher than this, but among the the top ten, top twenty rebounders in the league that can also shoot reliably from deep. It's a very unusual skill set, and obviously he's a bad defender, so that is that is a factor in there. But the factor of yeah, he's a bad defender, but he rebounds offensively and defensively well, and he stretches the floor so you don't lose that component of a good rebounding floor, kind of like Millsap does at points, but Love does it to a whole nother degree. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Like, his shooting ability is very transcendent, uh, and his ability to rebound is also partially due to the fact that Pekovic 
handles the um, on-ball defending a lot more than him. So I think he does have the ability to rebound. But he's a phenomenal rebound. I don't want to say that to take away from his rebounding. But I also think that there's something to be said that they, you know, and let's let's be clear. I, I, I think it's a very interesting conversation to have about Bosch and, and Love because those Toronto years are going to get swept under the rug, unfortunately. And it's really sad because – I mean, Chris Bosh at one point was definitely a consistent 20 and 10 guy, 22, 23, 24 game, giving us 10, 11 rebounds. And he's always had a perimeter touch. And I, I think it's cool in a way that Miami has figured out a way to allow him to expand his three point um, shooting prowess. But, yo, know, Chris Bosh can actually defend. And you're not worried about that. And I think that's the thing that's been concerning about watching the Timberwolves is like, why are they so talented and why are they this me- mediocre? I think is the, I, I think mediocre compared to what our expectations were supposed to be for that team. And I think if we're going to give Kevin, Kevin Love all that praise for being this transcendent offensive player, then he needs to be critiqued in a way that's, Hey man, like you got to do better. And, and if, and if he's, if we're going to be accepting of that, then the general management staff in Minnesota, they have to start understanding, okay, is this Pekovic, love relationship really going to work or do we need to make some tweaks and that's kind of sad because i think when when pekovic was sitting there available um in the love and the timberwolves got him for such a discount you know we were like oh man this could be a, a front court of the future and i think largely i think it's been very underwhelming yeah i think it's been underwhelming as well and i i think that whenever you have a guy who's a special talent in whatever way that they are then you are under the obligation to maximize them by hiding their weaknesses. I think I think that Houston needs to do a better job of that with Harden, and I think Dwight did some of that. But there's there the, I mean, unless you're going to go the opposite way and just say, okay, you're going to beat us by outscoring us, then but you have to take advantage of the people who are better, who are elite at something in the league. Right. Well, and then they have that point guard named Rubio who can't shoot, and that hinders their entire ability to outscore people exactly. you know which is which is tragic like i mean good god we were just here for the ricky rubio era we couldn't wait and now we don't know how bona fide of a player ricky rubio is going to be moving forward i mean i has been beaten into the ground but zach Lowe has made the statement that he's on pace to having the worst shooting I, I might be wording this incorrectly but he's on pace to having the worst shooting career of any player in nba history did i get that right yeah, it's pretty close. Of any, I think it's of any perimeter player who has played as much as he has played. But that because basically the idea is that anybody else who shoots as badly as he does is out of the league by this point, so they're not gonna they're not gonna play. So, yeah, that's a big problem. We'll we'll jump we'll jump on though to coach of the year. I think it's Stotts. I think Stotts uh, Terry Stotts Portland. I mean he he deserves that. The the fascinating thing with Portland is that they really not only organically kind of built that team. But the lineup has been so consistent, and then you see what happens where they just added a piece here, a piece here, and then Stotts was able to take that same roster pretty much um, within a year or two's time, and, like, he's maximized it for everything it can be. And they're probably still a player or two away from being, you know, where they really want to be. So I I give Stotts the, the, the credit just because I think it's the biggest shock of the NBA season thus far. I would even want to give maybe a little bit of credit to uh, uh, my boys down. Who, what's our coach in, uh, in Charlotte? Clifford. Steve oh, Clifford. Clifford. Uh, just because it's the Bobcats, and they might actually make the playoffs. And I have a soft spot for the Charlotte Bobcats just, just because I want them to flourish. And 
I think they're like a five seed right now. Oh, and the one other coach I'm forgetting is definitely Jeff Hornacek down at the Suns because their lottery prospects are now ruined. And Goran Dragic and Eric Bledsoe are like one of the best backcourts in the NBA. And it's like, this is borderline absurd, but it's awesome. And they play a fun brand of ball. I enjoy watching them on a nightly basis. And my only concern now is, you know, will they be able to keep it up? And I think they absolutely will be. We'll be able to do so. So if I were going to give my votes, I'd probably go one to st- one to Stodge, two to Hornacek. Maybe okay, maybe not Clifford three. Um, even though it's still fun to see Charlotte sixth in the playoffs, even though they're fourteen and eighteen. Um, but if I were going to give a third place vote, well, then maybe I'd give it to Paul uh, Frank Vogel instead. It's been a great year for coaches, and I think all those guys will also have a shot of winning, like having that award for twenty fourteen, which is really nice for the league. Right. And then the last category, if we want to call it that, is your moment for all of 2013, what you think is the moment of the year. You know, uh, this is going to hit home for you and me, Danny. I think it was the two games between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Golden State Warriors playing two games to the buzzer, in particular remembering what happened in Oracle with, you know, Russell Westbrook hitting this insane 35-foot three-pointer and shutting down Oracle Arena to a peep, except for one raving lunatic in the media section who was not supposed to be yelling at all. Oh, wait, that was me. And then, as soon as I was ecstatic and happy and had the biggest smile on my face of all time, Andre Iguodala peels down towards the baseline, spins away from Seth Velocia, and gets this shot up and, and puts Oklahoma City out of their misery, And which was probably the best game of the year, in my opinion. I thought that game was probably the most exciting game of the year, and that was fun. And then to see him do, do it again a couple of weeks later, at Chesapeake Energy uh, in Oklahoma City, and then Westbrook to hit that insane three in the corner, which he does not get enough credit for not pay, making that pass to Durant because people were saying, why didn't, he not, why didn't he not pass the ball to Durant at the end of the game? But what people don't usually see is that Draymond and David Lee are both swarming to Durant uh, to cut that pass off. And uh, for, him to, for him to make that baseline three at the end was absurd. And I think everybody's crossing their fingers that we'll get that series in the, in the Western Conference in the playoffs soon to come. So that, by far, that was, the moment, that was the moment of the year. That's the fun thing in terms of the story for 2014 is that I think that the Western Conference playoffs, I, I'm already looking forward to it now. And I'm sure that something will get tainted because of an injury or something like that. But it's going to be – like people say, oh, I want to see Warriors Clippers. I want to see, you know, Thunder Spurs or whatever. All of them are going to be great. Right. Each round, each round, everyone's going to, there There might be one or two blowouts just because, you know, if the Spurs get a team that they can outcoach and outplay in the first round or something like that. But it's going to be must-watch every night. And to add to that point, the Eastern Conference playoffs are going to be hilarious, By just to, just to throw a counter out there. Because, again, have you seen the records of these teams in here? Like, good God, we might have the... I'm push. I'm all in for the Charlotte Bobcats, and I think these dudes will mess around and get to the second round because I just don't believe in anybody else in the East outside of Miami and Indiana. So we need to start the movement now, get the Charlotte Bobcats to the second round of the NBA playoffs because this is the last time we'll ever see the Charlotte Bobcats after this season because they're going back to the Hornets. So we need to ride this out as much as humanly possible. On that note, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on, and have a have a great New Year. Hey, thanks, Danny, man. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Ed for coming on. You can read him at Slam, and you can also read at thesportsfanjournal.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at EdTheSportsFan, E-D, The Sports Fan. 
Thanks again to all of the guests in part one. That's Yahoo's Mark Spears, ESPN's Ethan Sherwood Strauss, Box Score Geeks Arturo Galetti, and Slam Online and Sports Fan Journal's Ed Mazinet. Really appreciated all of them taking the time. And as I said at the outset, this is a two-part podcast, and part two is available right now. That features all three of my real GM guests, as well as my own personal opinion of all of the topics that came up. So, hope you listen to that. Thanks again to all my guests, and take care. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. 